Welcome to the UGA BCM podcast, a ministry of the BCM at the University of Georgia. To find out more about us, follow us on Instagram at UGA BCM. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. We are starting a study on the, uh, not on the Beatitudes, on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start with the Beatitudes uh, because that's where it starts, right? And uh, there's a couple of things that you need to understand about the Sermon on the Mount before we jump into this. Now, I understand that we had a bunch of our churches over the last year that have done studies on, sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So if you're hearing this for the second time in the last year, uh, well, you can critique uh, what I said and what your college pastor said or what I said and what your pastor said, and you can tell me everywhere I was wrong. All right, you can tell me that later. Um, but in the meantime, uh, this is one of, this is awesome. Bottom line is Sermon on the Mount is awesome. But I also think it's one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted passages that we see in Scripture. And I really believe that. Because if you go back to your Sunday school days, when you heard the Sermon on the Mount, you probably heard it taken out piece by piece, taken out of the context of the entire sermon. If you're going to interpret the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to study the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to understand that it is an entire sermon. Now, there are some theologians and historians based on uh, Near Eastern context and based on how we see uh, ancient writers uh, write texts like the Bible that say that the Sermon on the Mount was possibly longer than what we read from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, right? And that possibly what was happening is they were taking the most important excerpts out of this. Um, But either way... Uh, This was not a a cumulative um, gathering of Jesus' teachings that were just thrown together into one sermon. There's too much evidence in here and how Matthew writes about it for that to be the case. So when you read this, you've got to understand that like any good sermon, what Jesus is doing is, is Jesus has an introduction, he has a body to the sermon, and he has a conclusion to the sermon. Jesus is going to tell you what he's going to tell you, he's going to tell you, and then he's going to tell you what he told you. By the way, for you young preacher guys in the room... That's a great way to prepare a sermon. You got it? You tell them what you're going to tell them. You tell them, then you tell them what you told them. All right? So that's just a nice little thing for you guys going into ministry. So with that in mind, what exactly is Jesus trying to say here? Well, there's a couple of things that I mentioned uh, that you see up on the screen. Oh, man, y'all gave me notes in the front. Ryan, you're amazing. Thank you so much. All right? I don't even have to look down at my my stuff here. Um, But number one, uh, Jesus did potentially uh, teach this sermon Uh, Some uh, theologians tell us he likely taught this sermon in multiple areas. And what I mean by that is, is y'all ever heard like certain preachers have their sugar sticks? Y'all know what that means? Y'all ever heard what that means? It means that if you hear certain guys preach, you ever went to like youth conferences or student conferences and you hear a guy preach multiple times and you hear him preach and you sort of hear him say the same thing? Y'all ever done that? Anybody ever been there and done that, right? All right. So what happens is, is if you're a pastor who travels around and you go to different places, a lot of times what you'll do is you'll have those four or five, six sermons that are really trying to get across whatever it is that you're trying to get across as you travel. And those, they call them your sugar sticks. They're the ones you can pull out and you can sort of preach at any time. You can preach from memory. Have you ever noticed if you go to a conference, those guys are always preaching like from memory? They ever, never have notes? And you're on Sunday morning, you're like, why does my pastor have notes he's got to look, like, look at, right? Because your pastor's having to prepare 52 sermons a year. It's a little different, Right? So you got to understand that there is potential that Jesus was preaching this or something very similar to this in multiple places. You can read accounts of sermons very similar to this in Luke as well, and teachings of Jesus very similar to this in Luke. 
So either way, though, this sermon is ultimately really the foundation, thus the reason we kept our little word up here, foundation from the fall, for what Christian life looks like. But it's more than just what Christian life looks like. Because if you take the Sermon on the Mount and you say, well, this is what the Christian life is supposed to look like, and you go down that rabbit hole, if you're not careful, you'll find yourself in a place thinking that your salvation is either A, by works, or B, you'll find yourself just really disappointed because you'll realize that you just really stink at what Jesus has told you to do. Does that make sense? And so we need to make sure that we contextualize everything this semester. And so what I wanted to do tonight was sort of start at the beginning, give us sort of an overview of what this was about, and then jump back into the first half of the introduction, which is the Beatitudes. Now next week, Pastor J. Josh Smith from Prince Avenue will be with us. He'll be sharing. Some of you are supposed to go, woohoo, because that's your pastor. I'm going to tell him you didn't do that. Okay? Yeah, look at that. You put his picture up there. Isn't that great? I got more hair than him. Y'all notice that? Uh, all right? And so you can take his picture down so I can see my notes again. That'd be amazing. All right? Uh, he'll be here next week. He'll talk about how we're called to be salt and light. That's the second half of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. All right? And so when we think about the Sermon on the Mount then, we've got to look at the structure and contextualize it as being one. And so that means we need to do a couple of things. Number one, we need to understand that the Sermon on the Mount deals with multiple topics. It deals with the Beatitudes, the blessings that come from really living different than what the world thinks we should live when it comes to being blessed. Uh, being salt and light. Uh, Jesus is going to talk about true righteousness. He's going to talk about relationships with others, how we deal with the poor, prayer, what we do with wealth, why we worry, why we shouldn't worry, how we should treat others. And then ultimately he concludes with this idea of that there's two options in this world. He talks about the narrow path and the wide path. He talks about the fact of, of the, tr fruit, the tree that bears fruit, the tree that doesn't bear fruit. And he talks about those who build their house upon the rock or upon the sand. You got that? So that covers really chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. But in the midst of that, you've got to ask yourself the question of what's important. What exactly is Jesus trying to get across in all of that? And here's what I want you to see tonight as we jump into this. We, we have to interpret this passage in a particular way. Now, some have interpreted this passage by saying that you read this passage, you do what the passage says, and you will bring God's kingdom to this earth now. Now, that's a struggle for me. It's a struggle for me in a couple of ways. Number one, it's a struggle for me because it sort of negates what we read in Revelation about God's kingdom and the promise of God's kingdom in the future. The other thing that, that's really a struggle for me in that is that we live in a fallen sinful world currently right now and it doesn't really matter how much quote unquote good you do it's still going to be fallen and sinful and we're still going to have the issue of sin in this world. Does that make sense? All right. The second thing is this is there there are those including Karl Marx who was really the 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 father of what we call German higher criticism and this really liberal interpretation of the scripture that says that what this is is really just how to be a good person and it's how to fix the ills of the world. Right? In today's world, we would say, oh, well, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's our justification for being all about social justice and ultimately saying that the end of the gospel is fixing all the social justice issues in the world. There's also a limitation on that where it doesn't completely fit. Uh, there are others that, that look at this and say that, again, you, you're going to basically create an elevated ethic for those who are ministers of the gospel, right? That Jesus is referencing the Pharisees, and so what he's doing is he's telling the Pharisees, hey, you know what, if, you're, if you, know, you claim that you're a minister, right, you claim that you're a, a religious leader, and so for the religious leaders, there's a higher burden, and uh, you got to be above reproach, and this is a higher ethic for you. And that also falls short when it comes to interpreting the, the Sermon on the Mount. But what we do see in the Sermon on the Mount 
is that ultimately Jesus is expressing to us the true standard of the law. Jesus says in this that he did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. That's what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we find that Jesus sets a true standard of the law. The problem is, is that we have a complete inability to meet that standard of the law. Because you read about later on in the Sermon on the Mount where what Jesus says is, he says, hey, you say, talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he says, you say you shouldn't commit murder. Well, if you hate your brother, guess what? You've committed murder. That's what he says, right? He says, you say that you, you, you shouldn't commit any sexual sin, right? He says, but hey, if you lust in your heart, guess what he does? He says, you've committed sin, right? And so what Jesus does is, is he says, the bare minimum is what the religious leaders of the day have set for you. The bare minimum is what the law has set for you. But he says this instead. He says, if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to truly be what God has called you to be, he said, the standard is much greater. And the standard is even if your heart is impure, even if you think the wrong things, you are guilty even though you may not have physically done it. And when you think about it that way and you realize that Jesus has elevated the standard not to abolish the law but rather to fulfill the law, then what you realize is is what Jesus is pointing out to us in this Sermon on the Mount is actually this concept that all of us stink. Right? That all of us cannot meet the standard that God has set before us. That none of us are worthy to inherit the kingdom of God. Not a single one of us. That's what Jesus is really telling us when you begin to open this passage here. And we're going to jump into it and read it in a minute, so just hold tight. This is introing it, okay? And so, if that's the case, we're all left in a mess, except for what Jesus does in chapter 7, which we'll get to at the end of the semester. In chapter 7, what Jesus does is, he goes, hey, guess what? Remember, he says, listen, he's going to start with the Beatitudes, and blessed is everybody that the world would say isn't blessed. And then he goes, oh, by the way, here's what true righteousness is in chapter 5. He says, here's what true righteousness is. And he says, basically, the religious leaders tell you you should do this. Well, I'm going to up it one. And then he begins to use over two chapters every single example you can imagine. How to deal with the poor, how to deal with your wealth, what it means when it comes to worrying, right? Your inner relationships with others. He begins to lay all of that out. And he sets this massive standard that none of us can hold to. But... At the end of this, what he does is, is he gives us two options. He goes, oh, and by the way, the road is narrow or the road is wide, right? Some choose the narrow road, some choose the wide road. Some bear fruit, some don't bear fruit. And by the way, ultimately, where this all wraps up is, where have you built your foundation? And so since you stink as a human and I stink as a human because I'm broken and I'm sinful and I cannot meet the standard of God, he ultimately concludes this sermon with simply this. You better build your foundation upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. Do you see how that all plays out? Now, I get it. When you were in Sunday school and you were like 8, 9, 10 years old, you were like given three or four verses out of the Sermon on the Mount, right, in a Sunday school class, and you were told, see, this is why you should be a good little boy or girl, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay? I'm not saying that's wrong. We should strive to be that, right? But yet we're not going to be. So we must build our foundation upon Jesus Christ. So we've got to understand that if we're going to truly and accurately interpret this. The other thing that we have to understand is if we're going to interpret this the right way and read it the right way is this concept of already and not yet when it comes to God's kingdom coming. We sang about God's kingdom in that last song, did we not? Right? And, and, and Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? 
But if you look throughout Scripture and you look at the prophecies, especially the prophecies that are this word called eschatological, which means it's the prophecies that are pointing to what's going to happen in the end times, you find this. Probably the best and simplest and easiest way, maybe not the simplest, but the, the easiest way to interpret those is simply understanding that in many of those prophecies, particularly dealing with the kingdom of God, we have to understand that there is a partial fulfillment and there is a total fulfillment of those prophecies. Your salvation is an example of that. Your salvation is an example of that. Do you realize all the full benefits of your salvation the moment you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Do you? No, you don't. You know why? You're not standing face to face before Jesus yet, are you? You're not in a perfect place yet, are you? You're still having to deal with a sinful fallen world, aren't you? Right? But there's still a, a partial fulfillment of that, that, that promise, is there not? And so when we read this and we talk about his kingdom, think about the fact of this, that you're not perfect yet. God has saved you. If you've put your faith and trust in him, right, if you've called on the name of the Lord, then you've been saved. But yet that starts a process by which you are sanctified and become more like Jesus. And so when we read this passage, when we read everything this semester, we must remember and understand in our minds, we're not good enough to do any of this in our broken, messed up, sinful state. And the standard that God set is too high for any of us as humans to meet. That's why we need Jesus. But we can read it through this already but not yet fulfillment of the promises that he's made understanding that the reality is is that God has promised us some amazing and great things and some of those we will partially experience here on this earth but all of those we will fully experience on the other side of death called heaven does that make sense y'all still with me well then let's read the scripture beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5 when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger from thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray tonight. Lord, we ask you that as we look at this passage tonight, Lord, that you'll help us to see, Lord, you setting the stage for everything else that's going to happen in this sermon. Help us to see tonight in this introduction, Lord, that ultimately you are calling us to take an internal look into our hearts. You are calling us to take an internal look into who we are, Lord, our brokenness, Lord, our sinfulness, Lord, and to have the right attitude, Lord, as these are called the Beatitudes, towards you. Help us to recognize that, Lord, the things that the world says should cause us happiness and blessings are not the things of you. But instead, Lord, help us to focus tonight on Lord, these things that you say, Lord, can cause us 
to be blessed. Understanding, Lord, that we will not fully experience these until one day we meet you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, this concept of already, not yet, quite is clearly seen even in the introduction that we call the Beatitudes. Matter of fact, as we look at these Beatitudes, I want you to think about two words very clearly. And this is really sort of the two overarching points for tonight. And I'm going to mention these on the front end, and then we're going to go Beatitude by Beatitude and see how that plays out. And that is number one, in the Beatitudes we see A, partial fulfillment, or one, partial fulfillment. And number two, we see the promise of the future. So let's look at each one of these, if we can, beginning in verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus says these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's what we got to understand. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says that in verse 3. And so how in the world does that play out when it comes to partial fulfillment, but yet the promise of the future? Well, first of all, what does it mean to be poor in spirit, right? we got to answer that question. What exactly does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, ultimately, to be poor in spirit, Charles Spurgeon says this. It's to understand not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. In other words, it is to understand, to be poor in spirit, is to recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt and powerless without God. That's what it means. Now, think about... The moment that you gave your heart and life to Jesus, if you're a believer in here. Think about the conviction that fell on your heart. We tell little kids that say, man, I want to know Jesus, right? We tell little kids that say, man, I want to ask Jesus into my heart, right? We tell little kids that say, man, I want to be a follower of Jesus. We tell them, you've got to recognize your sin. You've got to recognize your need for Jesus, right? Isn't that what we tell them? It's the same thing I tell you guys every single week. If you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus... Salvation requires humility. It requires coming to a place in your life that you realize without Jesus, you are spiritually bankrupt. And so Jesus says, he says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? This is not, when we read this, so many times what we do is we read, especially the Beatitudes, and we think that Jesus is talking about the physical state of people. That's not what he's talking about. What Jesus is talking about here is your heart. That's why it's called the Beatitudes, right? It's your heart. It's your outlook on things. And so ultimately, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's talking about the fact that those who understand their brokenness before God, it's theirs who is the kingdom of heaven. Now, how does that play out in partial fulfillment and the, future, or the promise of the future? Well, it's pretty simple, right? When you come to the place that you give your heart and life to Jesus and you recognize that you are poor in spirit, it is at that point that you experience salvation when you call on the name of the Lord to save you. But yet, as I just said, your salvation is a perfect example of the fact that you are not going to ultimately experience all those blessings and benefits until you reach the perfect place called heaven. Right? And so we see that he says the poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean for us as we are living this out on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, remember, there's this process of sanctification where we become more and more like Jesus. And so what that means is, is that if we've recognized our brokenness and our sinfulness, number one, it ought to, it ought to prevent us from becoming prideful. 
It ought to, ought to prevent us from having a haughty spirit. Because you know what happens, right? What happens is, is that you're broken. You give your heart and life to Jesus. And then all of a sudden you sort of start feeling good about your new state and your new life, right? You start feeling good about the fact that, man, Jesus has saved me. You start feeling good about the fact that, man, I'm trying to live for him. And so then all of a sudden you look around, you look around at people that don't know Jesus, you look around at people that aren't living for Jesus, and if you're not careful, what happens is, is you take the stance of, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. Right? And that's a dangerous place to be because what Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes is that it's those who are poor in spirit who will receive the kingdom of heaven. And so as we think about that, we've got to say, yes, it's a partial fulfillment that we see happen at the point that we are broken before God and we give our hearts and lives to Jesus. It is a complete fulfillment. It is a promise of the future of what will happen one day when we see him in heaven. And ultimately, we will recognize that regardless of our state on this earth, regardless of anything like that, that we were humble enough in this life to say it's not about me, but it's all about him. And ultimately, we will receive that reward. But in the meantime... We should live out our lives in a way in which we are continually reminding ourselves of our powerlessness and our spiritual bankruptcy before God. Notice what he says in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what are these people mourning over? Does this have anything to do with mourning over those who have died? Does this have anything to do with those who are mourning over their situation, whether it's financially or in their family or anything like that? I don't believe it really does. I don't believe it really does. In the context of this passage of Scripture, the fact that this is an introduction setting up us for the fact that he's going to tell us that we are all spiritually bankrupt and none of us can do what God's called us to do when it comes to the higher standard he's set of the law. You know what we ought to mourn over? The fact that we're spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. Not only those who are poor in spirit and recognize the fact that they're in a mess without Jesus, but also we see in this passage, in the next verse here as we just read, that it's not just about being poor in spirit, but it's about mourning over our sin. Over the brokenness of the world. So instead of being haughty in spirit and prideful in spirit, we ought to be poor in spirit, broken over our sinfulness, and yet also broken over the sinfulness of the world around us. And when we come to that place, it is that we will be comforted. Verse 5, he says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Many translations say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is where if we look at what Jesus is saying here, many times we will look at this passage and say that Jesus is calling us, you know, to turn the other cheek. We read about that in other places in Scripture. And Jesus is calling us to be weak and mild-mannered and all these types of things. And you've got to understand that when you define the word meek, we, we read it as gentle in some translations. But I, I really uh, like the, the translation meek a little bit better because there that's not this weakness that's being portrayed. But rather it's really this strength under control. Right? It's this strength under control. You know, really the only way to be meek is to be controlled not by your own power, but by the Holy Spirit. Right? Because when it's left to us, we're not meek. What happens is, is when it's left to us and we face conflict, when it's left to us and we face trials and tribulations, we either have a fight or flight response. Right? What we do is we either say, man, I'm going to be Mr. Big Bad Tough Guy. Right? And then we speak out of turn, and then we get angry, and then we do dumb stuff we shouldn't do. 
Or we get real meek, and, or, or excuse me, real weak instead of meek, and we just sort of run the other way. Neither one of those are what we see being described here. But instead, what we see being described here is that it is humility and strength under control that marks the believer of Jesus Christ, and that is only through the Holy Spirit. And so it's not a coincidence that he says, if you're being controlled by the Holy Spirit, guess what will happen one day? You shall inherit the earth. Anybody turn to Genesis and read lately? I'm at Genesis to Revelation and read lately. What happens to the believers? What do they inherit? The earth. What happens to the earth? Anybody know? In Revelation, it tells us that the earth is destroyed and a new heaven and new earth is created. Make sense? See how Jesus is pointing us? Not just to this, hey, here's how you should live. Check A, check B, check C, check D. That's not what he's doing. But he's instead pointing us to our brokenness and our need for him. And he sets it up in this introduction saying, you need to be humble. You need to be poor in spirit. You need to be meek. You need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and not by your own pride and not by your own strength. And then in verse 6, notice what he says. He says, those who hunger and thirst. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When you think about the phrase hunger and thirst, have you ever been really, really hungry or really, really thirsty? You ever been there? Right? You ever been in that place where, like, you look, you ever... Any of you guys or girls that were athletes in high school or, or athletes in, in, at any level, like, ever go to a practice and, like, forget your water? Isn't that miserable? Right? Yeah, and you get done. You get done. You're like, I just, I need something to drink. Right? Right? Especially if you typically stay very hydrated. Right? And you have a day where you forget it. Man, it's miserable. It's miserable. Uh, y'all know we used to do when I played so once I got actually it was in high school too so we did these things called two-a-days y'all know what two-a-days are right I played played middle school high school football and um, I'll never forget my first two-a-days I was in eighth grade so in the city that I was in up and through seventh grade you played like in the little league within the city or whatever and then in eighth grade you played middle school football and so you know I went from playing with you know 18 to 21 of my buddies you know, we're all the same age, you know, and back then they even had like weight limits in like the little city league, right? And so if you weighed too much, you got moved up to the next age group or you couldn't run the ball and you had to wear these ugly little yellow stickers on your helmet. Um, I grew a whole lot before I turned 12, like grew up a whole lot before I turned 12. And uh, so I had to like cut weight before weigh-ins, before games, because uh, I played linebacker. And so like I, if, you, if you had a sticker, you had to put your hand on the ground. It was terrible. It was miserable. Right? And so anyways, I say that to say, then all of a sudden you get to middle school, man, it's a shock. You know, we got like 75 kids on the team. They're from all over the place. Everybody's huge. Everybody's fast. Like it was nuts. Right? And, uh, and so anyways, we, we had two-a-days. And our coach was really, really old school. And uh, I actually coached with a guy later that uh, our head football coach at the high school that I was coaching at had to get on to because he was quite old school as well. Not our head football coach, the guy I was coaching with at the JV level. And uh, he used to tell the kids the same thing my middle school coach said, which was, water makes you weak. Actually, it makes you die if you don't drink it, I'm pretty sure. Right? Y'all know what I mean? Right? I think we've had incidents, legitimately, like incidences of that over the years where now we've gotten smarter and realized, no, actually you need to let them drink as much water as they want to, especially if you're going to be practicing two and a half hours, taking a couple hour break and practicing two and a half, three more hours. That's sort of how it works, Right? 
But I'll never forget one day in eighth grade, we were in the second day, like the second uh, session of practice one afternoon. So we practiced in the morning, and we had to bring our lunch. Once I got to high school, it was great because you did two days, you practice in the morning, and then they take you to a buffet. We used to go to Ryan's, and we would tear that bad boy up. And then we would go practice again in the afternoon, right? But in middle school, no, you brought yourself like a sack lunch. And you'd practice in the morning, you'd eat your sack lunch for lunch, and then you'd go back out there in the afternoon, and it'd be hot, because you're talking about like August, you know, and I'm in Columbus, Georgia, and I, was, I played at Richards Middle School. Some of y'all from Columbus know where that is, and uh, dude, we were, we were bad back then, buddy, like, like whooped everybody, but anyways, it's all right, my Columbus guy over here, and, uh, and so our field, like, there wasn't a lot of grass on it, I'll put it that way, right, and I remember we were out there one day, and uh, Coach calls us up about halfway through practice. It was, I guess, late in that week of two days. And uh, he goes, hey, guys, we got a treat for y'all. We're going to take a little break. And they busted out like these coolers. I don't know who brought them to us. I don't know if he got them, some church got them. I don't know. I just remember they busted out like these coolers and these boxes, and they started pulling, pull, pulling watermelons out of these bad boys. And it was like slices of watermelon, right? And, and it's hot as can be. And he's given us all these slices of watermelons. And I, I can't tell you how many watermelons I ate that day. Because it was cold. Like it had been iced. Y'all know what I'm saying? And it, it hit your mouth and you're like, man, this is great. What I didn't realize is like 30 minutes later into practice when we started practicing again, I wasn't going to feel so good. Y'all get what I'm saying? Right? <laughs> but like I remember that like it was yesterday just being miserable and just having a hunger and thirst for something cold. And we got those watermelon. When I ate that watermelon, I was passionate about eating that watermelon. Right? Do you know, do you know what Jesus is saying here? Like you're sitting on a football field in the second day of two-a-days in the middle of August in 90-degree temperature in central Georgia, central west Georgia, and the reality is, is that you ought to have a passion and a thirst and a hunger for righteousness the same way you would that day for just something cold and wet to touch your mouth. That's the kind of passion we ought to have for that which is right. Which, by the way, means for the believer in Jesus Christ, when we see things that aren't right, it should upset us. Right? It should hurt us. It should break us. And we live in a world of what? Unrighteousness, don't we? Right? We live in a world of unrighteousness. And so what we read Jesus saying here is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want to make a statement. I want you to hear me very clearly. You will not be satisfied for your passion for righteousness until his kingdom come. And you will not be satisfied for your hunger and thirst for righteousness until we live in a place where there is no more sin. And there's no more crying. And there's no more shame. And there's no more sadness. And there's no more sorrow. And there's no more brokenness. Now, can we do what God's called us to do? And to have a passion for that, 100%. But that is just a partial fulfillment of the promise of the future of what God has in store. You see that? So, 
We see this idea that we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The next thing we see is this idea of being merciful in verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they receive mercy. He says in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We know what mercy is, right? It's forgiveness. It's compassion. It's following the example of Jesus in our lives. Those who are pure in heart in verse 8 really kind of goes with this idea of those who are passionate for that which is righteous. Because those who are pure in heart are those who have a moral purity and a holiness about their heart. About their heart. Jesus is setting himself up pretty well here. Because remember, it's going to be just a little bit later where he says, Oh, you hate your brother, you might as well kill him, right? Right? You have hate in your heart? Well, you've committed murder. So here Jesus is saying, you want to see God? You've got to have a pure heart. So here it is. Think about this. Here we are as believers and we thirst for righteousness. But yet Jesus says it's not just that thirst for righteousness that is enough to see God. Because Jesus says to to see God, you not only have to have a thirst for righteousness. Because you've got to have all of these, it looks like to me, right? The way it's laid out. But he says you've got to have a pure, a moral, a right, a holy heart. And the problem is, is there's been one man to ever walk the face of this earth who's had a pure heart. His name is who? Jesus. 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 So you say, well, how does my heart become pure then? Well, I'd say, A, turn it over to Jesus. And allow him to make it pure. See, because what the Bible tells us and what Scripture tells us is that the reason Jesus had to die for us and had to raise three days later is because we all have a bunch of impure hearts. Because we're all broken, because we're all sinful, and that sin separates us from God because we're all dirty in the eyes of God. And the only way to see God, Jesus says, is with a pure heart. But the Bible teaches us and tells us that what Jesus did is he was the perfect Lamb of God The Bible says he came to take away the sins of the world, right? So he hangs between heaven and hell for you and for me. He suffers, he bleeds, and he dies. Why does he have to bleed for you and me? Because we know, based upon the Old Testament and based upon what Scripture tells us, we know that ultimately, at the end of the day, it is only through a blood sacrifice that sin is forgiven. And we know that Jesus is merciful because he had a pure heart. And we know also that we just read about that if you want to see God and you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven and all those things, you got to be what? Merciful, right? So here we have Jesus who was merciful, who understood forgiveness. He understood compassion. And so what he did is he took on your sin and he took on my sin. And he hung between heaven and hell for you and for me. The perfect Lamb of God. He had to be fully human so that he could take on our punishment. But he had to be fully God so that he could be pure and holy and right and just. And so he was. And so when you and I give our hearts and life to Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that he makes us with a pure, clean, new heart. You know what's awesome? You ever heard somebody be like, yeah, that Paul guy, I don't like that Paul guy, because that Paul guy said stuff other than Jesus. You ever heard heard say that? Do, Do you know, I'm pretty sure it's Paul that writes in a letter that ultimately he doesn't have people, or he doesn't need people to pen letters of recommendation for him. He says this in 2 Corinthians. Matter of fact, if you read 2 Corinthians... Uh, you will be amazed how much Paul parallels the Beatitudes, particularly this verse and the next one. Because what Paul does is he lays out for us and he says, I don't need letters of recommendation about what I'm doing. He says, you're my letters of recommendation. And he says, it's been pinned upon your hearts. 
And he says, it's not a heart of stone, but it's a, it's a living letter. That's what he says. He says, it's not a letter of stone, it's a living letter. You want me to write a, an inanimate letter, a dead letter, a letter of stone. And Paul says, that's not what you need. Paul says, what you need is a living letter. You need a heart change. You need a heart transformation. It is only through what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary that we can experience that. That's it. That's it. And do you know what happens when you experience that? Check out the next verse. Check out the next verse. <laughs> Ooh, this is where it gets good. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do you know what Paul also says in 2 Corinthians? He says we're peacemakers, but you know how he says it? See, what Paul does is he said, hey, God's written a, a, a letter on your heart. And it's a living letter. It's not an inanimate letter. It's an animate letter. And then what Paul does in the next couple of chapters in 2 Corinthians is he lays out for us how that we're to be light in the world around us. He says, hey, you're a letter. And he says, hey, you're light. And he says, hey, and you're to show love. And then guess what Paul says? In 2 Corinthians, what Paul then says is this. And it lays up exactly with these two verses and what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. He says, and oh, by the way, Jesus has given you the ministry of reconciliation. And you have literally called, been called to plead on behalf of God to others to be reconciled to Christ. Or to re be reconciled to God through Christ. And then he says, and that's why you're to be, I'm paraphrasing obviously, because it takes forever to read the whole thing, ambassadors for Christ. That's what he says. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Paul lined up pretty well with Jesus' teachings, huh? So the next person that tells you that Paul was a male chauvinistic jerk, just be like, hey, go read the Beatitudes and then go read 2 Corinthians and let's talk again. So do you know what we've been called to do? If God has made our heart pure by through what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary, then what we've been called to do, and we see it right here, is that we have been called to be peacemakers. And see, this is more than just, I don't want to be in the midst of conflict. I don't want to be in the midst of drama. No. Now, should what happens in your heart change you in that way? Of course. But this is about the fact that you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You've been called to be peacemakers, to share with others the good news of Jesus Christ so that they can be brought to peace with their God, with their maker, with their creator. That's what he's called us to do. And what's the promise? Well, he says... Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then he says in verse 10 and 11, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to make this very clear. Jesus does not say blessed are the persecuted. He says, blessed are the persecuted, and then he gives two reasons. Because of righteousness and because of me. Now our world would say, well, yep, we're supposed to read that. See, blessed are the persecuted. Everybody that's ever been downtrodden, everybody that's ever been persecuted, we need to fix it and make it right. Now I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying that don't use that out of context to try to make a point. There's enough other scripture that tells you to treat people right. Does that make sense? Right? 
Because what this verse says is, you're blessed when you're persecuted because of your righteousness. And you're blessed when you're persecuted because you follow Jesus. And there's a great hope in that. Because remember, I said, remember this partial fulfillment. But I also said, remember this promise of the future. Do you know what Jesus just described in the Beatitudes? Do you know what he just described? He just described a believer who is living for him. He just described a fully sanctified Christian. Now here's the problem with what I just said. When do you become fully sanctified? (laughs) When you're dead, (laughs) but then you're alive. (laughs) Y'all got that? So here's, here's what Jesus really just described. Jesus just described his followers who were listening to him. Many of who were going to be persecuted for their faith. Many of you who were going to be persecuted for living a life of righteousness. Many of who were going to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. And he's encouraging them. And he's promising them that, listen, this is the standard. It is greater than what the world says. It is different than what the world says. And you're going to go through it. And you're not going to be perfect. But I've called you to live a life of purity and holiness and righteousness and to have a passion for righteousness but you're broken so you're still going to mess up but I'm going to be transforming your life through the process and I'm going to be making you more like me and one day you'll see that promise of the future now compare that with what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were saying because they were saying here's your strict little guidelines and here's what you're supposed to do and then you'll be alright with God right and Jesus is saying that ain't enough not to mention that's all about the outward and literally what Jesus just did is he took us down a path of where he said no it's about your heart and when your heart changes guess what happens Then it changes your actions. And you'll become peacemakers. And you'll live a life of righteousness. And you'll live a life for Jesus. But when you do, you understand that you're going to be persecuted. But you can be happy and blessed in the midst of that persecution. Because there is a reward. Because in verse 12 he says, Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I want to ask you a question tonight. It's a very simple question. It's not, are you doing all this stuff? It's not it. Because I guarantee you, you're not. It's, is your heart's desire to do all this stuff? Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you put your faith and trust in Him and your heart's desire is to do all this stuff, you're still going to blow it and mess up. But He will make you more like Him. And one day, there will be a total fulfillment and the promise of the future that you will inherit the kingdom of heaven, that you will inherit the earth, that you will see Jesus, that you will see God, and that you can rejoice in the reward waiting that's a great promise isn't it so here's the deal if you're a follower or believer of Jesus 
Quit trying to live your life with a bunch of checklists. Instead, follow Jesus. That's going to change your life. It's going to probably help you quit doing stupid things and getting yourself in trouble all the time too, by the way. And in the midst of that, you'll become more like Him. Line up your life with His Word. Be obedient to what He's called you to do. And have a heart whose desire is to follow Him. Now, if you're in here and you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, guess what? None of these promises are for you. Not a single one. Not yet. But they can be. If tonight you will become poor in spirit, recognizing your brokenness and your sinfulness, and you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, asking Him to forgive you and to save you, experiencing His mercy, His forgiveness. And then, then, you will be called righteous in the eyes of God one day. Because it is only through Jesus that we can be made right. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you enjoyed this week's message, share it with a friend. To stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram at UGABCM. We hope to see you next Monday night at Gathering. Oh,